Good morning, church. Great to see you in the house of the Lord today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles out with me to the book of Malachi. Old Testament minor prophet Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, find Matthew, the first gospel. In the New Testament, turn left, find that blank page in your Bible, uh, and then go one more page. Now you're in Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to go there today and for the next couple of Sundays and jump right into the scriptures together. I'm so grateful to have you here with me. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to honor the word of the Lord before you today. And so I just want you to jump right in. I felt like I might be seated today because I got a little more teaching to do. And so let's get right into the word of God. As you turn there, let me just tell you, this is one of the minor prophets but it's not called minor because it's insignificant. It's called minor because of the size of the letter. It's only four chapters long. And so if you're still looking for it, be encouraged. It's hard to find, but it's there. And I'll probably just cover most of the first two chapters today. But let's find application right here at the beginning. How many of you know it's easy to get excited about new things? It's easy to get amped up for something that you're starting off that you've never done before, and uh, you know maybe it's a new job, but how many of you know sometimes the new job eventually just becomes the job? And the new car with the big payments that smells like a new car, after a while it smells like McDonald's stale fries, and the payments are still there, and it's not as exciting as it used to be. Or, or, or the honeymoon ends. And, and the, well, we'll leave that alone for another day, but how many of you know sometimes it's easier to be excited about new things than it is to be excited about things for the long haul? Even a year, we get excited about a new year, but how you doing in the fourth quarter? I mean, we got seven weeks left in 2021. I'm still pretty excited about it, but I, I got to be honest, it's easier to get excited about the unknown than it is to be excited and stay excited about what is known. All of us have started things with good intentions only to, to lose steam, to lose focus, to be derailed, disqualified, distracted. Welcome to 425 BC. And welcome to 2021 AD. We've all been there before, and that's the situation that we're looking at in this minor prophet. The, the people of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon, and through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, after 70 years, you're going to come out of captivity. You're going to go back to Israel. And they did. And through leaders like Nehemiah and Esther, the people of God began to rebuild the city. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And now they've been back for 100 years. They've been living back in Jerusalem for 100 years when we opened the word of God to Malachi. And what's happened is what was once exciting... What was once um, invigorating for the people has now become a chore. It's now become mundane. The worship of God has lost its, its passion and its intensity. Their hearts toward God have grown cold. And, and it's into that setting that we read verse 1 of Malachi chapter 1. Look at it with me. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And I love the, the, how concise the intro is. He just says, this is the word of the Lord. And that's his focus. Malachi is only 55 verses long, and 53 of those verses reference God. 
He just wants you to know, this is, this is the word of the Lord. I'm not coming with fluff. I'm not coming with a bunch of anecdotes or, or illustrations or, or personal stories. I'm just giving you what God is saying. And, and I want to be honest up front and tell you, that's kind of my heart in this sermon series. I just, I just want to give you what God is saying. It's interesting, we don't really know much about Malachi. We don't know his history. We don't know what tribe he's from. He just steps on the scene and he says, this is the word of the Lord. If you're a guest here today, you're probably feeling that's what just happened. I just jumped up here and, you know, just asked you to start drinking from a fire hydrant. I'm just giving you the word today. This is the word of the Lord to us. And out of this little short two chapters here at the beginning of Malachi, we get four messages. Now, I might not get to all four of them, but these are major messages from a minor prophet. If you're a note taker, I want you to write these down because these can change your life. Number one, here's a major message from this minor prophet. God loves you. Now, I know that just blew your hair back. I mean, that was like a, a revelation truth bomb that just got released in this place. I know that just touched your heart. Some of you, how many of you knew that already? Come on, be honest. You knew that. You're like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm trekking so far. Hadn't read too much of the Bible, but I, I got that part. God loves me. But look at what he says. Malachi chapter one, verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Now, I, I know that sounds so audacious to such a spiritual crowd. You would never say that to God, right? You would never question the love of the Lord. How have I loved you? But come on, let's be honest. At, at, at a, a, a less refined moment in our life, in a struggle, in a difficulty, in a storm, in a moment where you don't know what to do or which way to go, how many of you have, it's not that you don't believe intellectually that God loves you, but how many of you have been in a place in your heart and your mind where you question, I don't see how God's loving me today. Been there? And so they, they audaciously respond to God. How? How have you loved us? Now look at what he says. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, that doesn't sound particularly encouraging as a way to respond to the question, how have I loved you? But I want you to see there's, there's three ways that God is actually answering the question for them and for you. And the first one is this. said, so you want to know how I loved you? Look in your past. Look in your past. And he right away, he, he's talking to the nation of Israel. So he goes all the way back to two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob, his name was later changed to Israel. This is the, the, the genesis of the nation, of the audience he's speaking to. And many of you remember that story. Esau and, and Jacob were actually twin brothers. Esau was born first. And so according to the, the custom of the day, he had the... the Firstborn rights. He was the primary heir to all that his father owned, except for this one little detail in Genesis 25. While the, the babies are kicking and squirming inside of their mother, Rebecca, she prays and says, God, what is going on? And God tells her, There are two nations in your womb, and the younger one is going to rule over the older one. And so, what God is saying to, to Israel in this moment is listen, the reason, the, the way you know that I love you is by looking in your past. It's not that you're better than Esau. It's not that you did more to earn my favor. You, there's one reason that you're so blessed today. 
I chose you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look at your past and know this. I chose you. And then he goes on a little farther in verse three there to say, God God hates Esau. Now, Now, here's the deal. God doesn't actually hate Esau. And sometimes we can read something like this and be a little shocked. And if you're a little shocked by that statement, that's actually why he said it. He's using a Hebrew communication device to grab their attention. It's almost like this. If you saw a sign that said, uh, free puppies. And so you pull over and you go over and there's somebody sitting and they've got a box. And like there's a box there and there's 10 puppies in the box. And you pick one out that you love. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. I love this. And the puppies lick in your face. And you let it ride in the front seat on the way home. And you take the puppy home and you knit it some weird Christmas sweater. And you let it eat off your plate and sleep in your bed. And then... A week later, you drive by and you see that box and that sign that says free puppies and you look and there's still nine puppies in the box. It's almost like you hated those other nine puppies. You didn't actually hate those puppies, but in light of the way you've treated the one you chose. See, Jesus used the same device when he was talking about what it costs to follow him. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, or his sister, yes, even their own life, then such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, does Jesus really want you to hate your wife and children? No. No, what he's saying is your love for me, your devotion to me should be so red hot that it appears like, like you hate everybody else compared to how much you love me. That's what he says it means to to follow the Lord with all of your heart. And this is what God is saying to Israel. He's saying, that's the way I loved you. The the way I picked Jacob over Esau. It looked like I hated Esau, but that's just how much I've loved you. And can I tell you, we don't have to look back to two nations battling within the womb. We don't have to look that far back. We can look back today into our past, and we can see the cross. And can I tell you, if you look back into your past, God has a message for you. The message at the cross is, I loved you. I loved you not because you did anything right, not because you were born in the right family, not because you you showed up at church on Sunday morning, not because you wore a really sharp suit like these three guys in the front. Man, you guys are looking so fly. Felt like I was at a Jimmy Swaggart revival when they walked in, man. He loves you. He just, he just does. He loves you. And when you look back at the cross, you remember what Romans 5, 8 says, that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us in this. He died for us on the cross. Now, here's what the devil wants to do. The devil wants you to, to think about the circumstance you're in. He wants you to dwell on what you're facing. He wants you to look at the, the shortcomings and, and the, the, the frustrations and the disappointments. And he wants you to believe the lie. He wants you to ask the question, how have you loved me? Can I remind you what Malachi said? Just look back. Look back. And when you look back at the cross and you see that the blood of Jesus was shed for me, when you see the precious blood of the Lamb of God on your behalf, you got to look at your situation and say, I don't really know what this means. I, I don't know what this says, and I'm not really sure what God's doing. But when I look back at my past, I know that this doesn't mean God doesn't love me because that speaks a better word. Amen. 
And then he says, secondly, look at the present. Look at the next verse. Verse four, Malachi one says, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They'll be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Again, at face value, might not sound super encouraging, but God's showing them something in the present. See, the reality is he's talking about Edom because Edom was the nation that came out of Esau. Israel is the nation that came out of Jacob. And so while they're saying, God, how have you loved us? What God is saying in this moment is look around. See, both nations, Israel and Edom, came into difficult times. Israel, as I said, was in captivity for some 70 years. But the Edomites, they also had their troubles. Edom had been invaded by the Nabataeans, and they had been pushed to the south away from their home country. And so while God is graciously restoring Israel, They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. They're rebuilding the city. They can look across the border, and they can see that Edom is still being judged for their wickedness. They're still being judged for their rebellion. And so God in this moment is saying, if you question the fact that I love you, just look around. Look at the present circumstances in your life. And can I just say that these people sound a whole lot like us in our 21st century complaints to God? Right? I mean, it's so easy for us to get frustrated about things in our culture and in our world and for us to even maybe consider the fact that God isn't being as loving and kind towards us. But have you looked at the rest of the world lately? I, I, I mean, most of the things that we complain about as problems, the rest of the world would consider those things a blessing. I mean, like, oh my gosh, $4 a gallon for gasoline, what's happening? The rest of the world's going, I wish I had $4 to pay to put gas in something that would take me from point A to point B. Like, like oh, I'm sorry, you had, to, you had to wait on hold for 30 minutes to talk to your doctor? You have a doctor? Oh, they got your prescription wrong. You mean somebody gave you medication? Oh, I got a brain freeze. You mean you people have ice? I mean, seriously. Our problems pale in comparison to what most of the world deals with. And, and the reality is we've got to look around. We've got to lift our eyes above our circumstances and take into account the goodness of God. And can I just encourage you in this Thanksgiving season to count your blessings, begin to name them one by one, write them down if you have to, make a list, put on some praise music, think yourself happy in the Lord, and get back to a place where you recognize the goodness and the love of God in your life so that you never ask the question again, how have you loved me? God loved you in your past. God loves you presently. And the third thing God says is look to the future. Look at it with me in verse five. The Lord says you will see it with your own eyes, and you'll say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Can I tell you, church, there's a day coming when you will see it, and you will say, great is the Lord. And he tells them, you're gonna say it even beyond the borders of Israel, and honestly, we can look at the reality of our world today, and we can, we can see this. We can see that there are millions and millions of people that are congregating in churches just like this one to sing, great is the Lord. We're declaring God is great. We are way beyond the borders of Israel. 
We can go even farther than that. The Bible says one day in Revelation 22, it says we're going to behold him. We're going to see him face to face. And we're going to join with all the saints and all the angels and all of the heavenly beings. And we're going to sing holy is the Lord. We're going to see it and we're going to say it. And sometimes we just need to lift our eyes beyond our circumstances and recognize there is a day coming, church. When we will see it and we will say it. I'm going to tell you, in that day, in that moment, you can't get any farther beyond the borders of Israel than that. We're going to be in the presence of God singing his praise. And so Malachi, he just shows up on the scene, drops onto the canvas of Scripture to say this, God loves you. Don't forget it. The second thing he says is this, God deserves my best. God deserves your best. You know, one of our core values as a church, we have six core values, and one of them is battle mediocrity. And there's one motivating, catalyzing purpose for that being one of our core values. We battle mediocrity because God deserves our best. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters. Do you know what Israel was doing? They weren't giving God their best. In fact, they were actually giving God their worst. We won't take time to read all of it here, but in verse six through 11, God says to them, even your priests, they dishonor me. And then they ask the question again, but how? How have we dishonored you? Look at verse seven. God tells them, he says, they dishonor me by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how do we defile you? And he says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now today we received communion. And in the new covenant, in the New Testament, that's called the table of the Lord. We come to the table of the Lord. It was at the table that he instituted communion. And we took the the body and the blood of Jesus symbolically through the bread and through the juice. It's our way of saying, Jesus... I want your whole life. I'm coming to the table to receive all that you've done for me. The theological term is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It just means that I recognize that if Jesus doesn't die on the cross for my sins, I have no way to God. Lest you think that Christians are people that have have just, you know, learned how to live a, a higher quality of life. No, Christians are people that realize that my best effort is still not enough. Christians are people that come to the table and recognize that that if Jesus doesn't save me, if God doesn't empty heaven's bank account for my benefit, I don't make it in. And so every time we come to the table of the Lord, we're celebrating that. We're remembering that. Well, in the old covenant, they had a table too. And the table of the Lord in the old covenant was the place where they celebrated substitutionary atonement. Same thing. Except because Jesus hadn't come, Leviticus 16 tells us what this looked like. The the priest would take two lambs. They would take uh, two rams and and cast lots between them. And, And one of those rams was laid on the altar and sacrificed on the table of the Lord. And that sacrifice was to atone for the sins of the people. It was so that your sins would be forgiven for another year, and then they'd have to do it all over again. But the other goat that was, uh, that 
received the, the longer straw, didn't end up on the table, but he was called the scapegoat. And so they would take the scapegoat to the greatest priest, the high priest, and, and the high priest would put his hands on the goat and he would profess all the sins of the people. He would say all the wicked, rebellious things that the people of God, essentially what he was doing is he was, he was putting the people's sins on the goat. And then they would assign somebody the task of taking that goat and leading it outside of town and releasing it into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat. You take all the blame for all of us. But Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all the Old Testament law, which means that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one that stands before God and confesses forgiveness for us over all the sins. But it also means that Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed on the table. It was his blood that was shed for our forgiveness. But it also means that Jesus is the scapegoat, that God saw him who had no sin, and he made him become sin. He took all our sin on his shoulders so that we could become the righteousness of God. And that's why when Jesus put that cross beam on his shoulder, the Bible says he went down the Via Della Rosa and he carried it outside of the city. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of this table. And I want to tell you, if you knew what the table really represented, if you understood the significance that without this, I can't even have a relationship with God. We would never take it lightly again. We would never bring less than our whole heart in devotion to God when we approach and celebrate the reality that Jesus made a way for me to be with God. But the priests in Malachi's day, they had gotten so calloused about the responsibility that they thought it was a chore. And it, it was a chore. It was a, it was a responsibility. I mean, for our table, you know, the, the hardest thing we have to do is to get all the little cups in all the right places in the room. But, but for that table, I mean, they had to raise the animals. They had to bring them to the temple. They had to, they had to sacrifice the animal and deal with the guts and, and, and dung out the stalls from where they kept the animals and, and the smell of burning flesh on the altar and, and all of those things they were dealing with. And they... They were disgusted by it. They were weary from it. In fact, if you look at verse 13 in chapter 1, it says this. It says, God says to them, and you say, what a burden. Talking about coming to the table of the Lord. What a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. Have you ever thought like that? About serving the Lord? Like, what a burden. I mean, to spend the first day of the week in worship and rest. I mean, I already gave five days of the week to the man. I only got two now. I mean, God, you want, you mean you want me to bring the tithe? You want me to bring 10% of everything you've given me? You want me to bring that back to the Lord? Oh, what a burden. It's almost Christmas season. You mean you want me to love those, those people? Those people? God, I mean, surely, surely you don't expect me to love those people. Now, it's easy for us to read these people in the text and go, oh, I can't believe they didn't appreciate the fact that they got to serve at the table of the Lord. But how many times have we taken it for granted? How many times have we done the same thing in our heart? And then what do we do when we start to feel that way? We start cutting corners. 
I, I, can't, I couldn't give God 10%. I, I tell you what, I'll give you two. How about that, Lord? I'll give you 2%. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I, I, can't really, I can't really commit to serving, but I'll watch online. I, I, can't, I can't really put the Lord first, but, you know, I, I'll show up every once in a while. I'll do, I'll do the Christmas Eve service. You know, I'll, I'll come around every now and again, and we start cutting corners, and that's exactly what they were doing. Instead of giving God the best, as the word prescribed, the firstborn male lamb, spotless, pure, without defect, without blemish. Instead of doing that, they went into the stalls and they actually found the diseased lamb. They found the one that was blind, the one that was a little gimpy, the one that they were like, he's probably not gonna live past this week. Let's go ahead and put that one on the altar. you know. And they started giving God less than what he deserved. Look at the next part of verse 13. God says, when you bring injured, lame, diseased animals, and you offer them as sacrifices, should I accept those from your hands? It's a good question. Like, is that, should, should I be impressed? Should I, should I be receiving that instead of bringing your very best? You, you, instead of bringing the spotless lamb, you, breeze, you bring me this animal? And, and then in this chapter, God gives a, a really powerful heart check opportunity. It's back up in verse 8, but this will help every one of us today. Look at what the Lord says in verse 8. He said, when you offer your blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And here's the litmus test of your devotion to the Lord. Try offering that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, come on. How often and how easy is it for us to make excuses for God that we would never give to our boss? Like, imagine just writing to the IRS and be like, you know, 15% is a little steep. I'll give you two. Right? Or, or, or. Calling in on Monday and being like, you know, I, I got into a show hole last night on Netflix. I'm going to be a little late today. I tell you what, I'll watch online. But how easy is it for us to make excuses when it comes to our relationship with God? So it's a great question. Are, are, we, are we making excuses for God that we'd never make for our teachers at school? I mean, come on, we want to be honor roll. We want to be AP students, but we want to like barely get by with a C average when it comes to our devotion to the Lord. So he says, why don't you, why don't you try that in the other area of your life? Try, try that half-hearted devotion and see how that works out for you. The reality is Jesus, or the Lord says here, that there's consequences to that. There's consequences to you not not coming to the Lord with a whole heart. And one of the consequences in verse nine of the first chapter is that your prayers are gonna be unanswered. That's a pretty steep consequence. I know for us, like we, we don't want to think about our lifestyle actually having any effect on the effectiveness of our prayer life. But can I just be honest with you and say that the Bible speaks too clearly and too emphatically for us not to believe that the way I live my life has an impact on how effective my prayers are. 
Now, now, mind you, God is gracious. He's better to you and I than we ever deserved. And if you need God and you call on God, he is a God of grace and mercy. But the truth is the Bible says over and over again that the way you live your life and your worship to God has a direct correlation to how effective your prayers will be. Listen to these words in Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist said, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, he's not saying if I have ever sinned or if I've made a mistake. He's saying if I come and I know I have sin in my life and I know God's not pleased with it and the Holy Spirit's already convicted me about it, but the fact is I like my sin more than I like obedience to God. And I'm just going to show up for an hour from 10 to 11. Let's be honest, 11, 15. And I'm going to. I'm going to just pretend that 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 doesn't exist and that God's going to respond to my prayer. He says, no, actually, the Lord's not going to hear you. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 says this. It says, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear. How many of you heard that verse before? That's a, great, that's a great verse. That's a good quotable verse. That, that's a faith-building verse. This God's ear is not too deaf. His arm is not too short. He can reach you. He can hear you. We love that verse. But look at the next verse. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. God is saying over and over again clearly, you have to battle mediocrity in your own heart. You can't come with a half-hearted devotion. God's not gonna build his kingdom on tips. You gotta come with your whole heart. You gotta bring your best to the Lord. You gotta come with a heart full of devotion to the Lord. And he's reminding us through Malachi, he's saying, I love you. I love you. Look at your past and know that I love you. Look at your circumstances and know that I love you. Look to the future promises and know that I love you, but also know this. God deserves your best. He deserves your absolute best. I want to ask the worship team to come. I want to give you a third thing quickly that Malachi communicates to us. It's a simple but powerful truth, and it's simply this. God's word is true. His word is true. Jesus said in John 4 when he was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, time is coming and is now here that worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. This is the kind of worshipers that the Lord desires. And so in chapter one of Malachi, God is dealing with the spirit. He's saying, look, you're doing all the stuff. You're coming to the table. You're sacrificing the animal, but your heart is not right. It's, it's, it's an issue with your spirit. And now he gets into chapter two and he starts dealing with the truth. And so because he's dealing with the truth, he starts talking about covenant. Because the covenant was the, it was the parameters for the relationship that Israel had with God. It was the old covenant. And we have what we call the new covenant, but it's still based on the authority of Scripture. And so God, he cuts right to the heart of it all in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 2. He's talking about the priests. He's talking about the leaders. Here's what he says. He says, for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge because the priest is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and the people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way. 
And by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. You violated the covenant of the law, says the Lord Almighty. That's a strong rebuke. And and let me just tell you, as, as a minister of the gospel, it's not lost on me that he's talking to the priest. I mean, this communicates how how far into rebellion the people had fallen, that even the people that are supposed to be teaching them the word of God, instead of saying, this is what the word of the Lord says, come up here, they've lowered the standard. They, They were placating to the wealthy. They were preaching a gospel that was more palatable. They were, they were just telling more funny stories and, and getting people to laugh a lot more. And as long as everybody's happy and having a good time, and God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to know something. My word is true. And my word doesn't change. And one of the ways that we honor the word of God, we honor the name of God, is by proclaiming the truth of his word. I, I was thinking on Friday about Pastor Chris in our, in our youth ministry saw a perfect example of this on Thursday night they tackled a difficult topic he preached a message about sexual identity to our students from a biblical standpoint now if you, if you just want to put a target on your back or you know get hate mail just start talking about hot button issues in the culture but, but I'm so grateful for their willingness to stand up and to talk about difficult issues because God's word is so clear. If we don't do that, if we don't stand up for the truth in the midst of a godless culture, here's what the Lord says in, in Malachi chapter two. Look, look at verse two. God says, if you do not listen, talking to the priests, the leaders, the pastors, If you don't listen, if you don't resolve to honor my name, says the Lord, I'm going to send a curse on you and I'll curse your blessings. So like, I'm going to send new curses and the stuff that you already got that was good, I'm going to curse that too. (laughs) He said, in fact, I've already cursed them because you've not resolved to honor me. They weren't honoring because they weren't preaching the word of God. That's... That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said in James chapter 1, he said, not many of you should desire to be teachers. Like, it might look good. It might look like a fun job, you know, to be up front and to be the one that everybody else listens to. But James said, not many of you should become teachers because you know that you who teach will be judged a lot more strictly. So God's judgment for the priest is harsh. Here they are complaining They're complaining about the job, the chore of the table of the Lord. What a chore to have to serve the Lord in this way. What a burden to have to smell the dung of these animals and the burning flesh on the altar. And and God says something to him that's pretty shocking. In verse 3, he says, Because of you, talking about people that mishandle the word of God. Because of you, I'll rebuke your descendants and I'll smear on your face the dung from the festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. Wow. 
Doesn't that sound like the loving God that you know and sing to? He said, hey, you think it smells bad at the table of the Lord? Keep mishandling the word of God. I'm going to rub your face in it. (laughs) Now, why in the world would God say that? Well, again, it's hyperbole. He's not really going to smear animal dung in their face. But he was saying, the shame is going to be on your face. And the way that it's taken and removed outside the city, that's what's going to happen to you. I'm going to remove you from your position. I'm going to remove you from your opportunity if you won't honor the word of God as the truth. And this isn't just a lecture for those that minister or teach the word. Let me remind you, church, that in the new covenant, in Jesus, because of our table, the Bible says that we are all a part of the royal priesthood. That that we all are responsible for how we handle the word of God. He speaks these words to us. And he says, you need to to honor my covenant. You need to honor my covenant. And what the enemy wants to do to them and to us is to get us to believe that, man, you know, uh, obeying the word of God, it's, man, it's, it's such a chore. I mean, if I, if I try to live by God's standard, I won't be accepted, I won't be loved, I won't be liked. If I, if I live by God's standard, I'm not going to be able to have fun. I'm not going to be able to go out and pursue my dreams. Like, oh, the Word of God is just such a taskmaster. And so God speaks back to that issue. And you have to see this in, in verse 5. He says, my covenant talking about the covenant that he made with Levi, the priesthood. He said, my covenant is with him, and it's a covenant of life and peace. Life and peace. God's reminding his people that the word of God is is not going to hinder you from pursuing your dreams or fulfilling your heart's desire. In fact, the word of God is going to bring you the greatest life you could have. Jesus said in John 10 and 10, the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. If you live according to the word of God, he said, you're going to have peace in your heart. You're going to have peace that money can't buy. You're going to have prosperity. You're going to have health. You're going to have wholeness. The blessing of God follows the faithfulness of God's people. If you'll live according to the word, it's a good covenant. It's not just true, it's good. It's for life and peace. So God steps into the middle of 2021 AD and he says, I love you. Don't forget it. And I'm worthy of your best. Don't get weary in well-doing. What you used to be passionate about, what you used to have zeal for, what you used to be committed to, now now you're cutting corners. Now you're just giving God just enough. He said, no, no, no. Give God your very best. And he steps into our situation right now in our culture, in our world, and he says, my word is true. You can trust it because not only is it true, it's good. I want to ask you to stand with me if you're able all over this room. I've asked this worship team to come back up here because... I want them to just sing these words unto the Lord as an offering of worship. And I want to invite you to make an altar right where you're standing. 
And if the Lord's been dealing with your heart about the way that you've approached him, about the way that you approach his table and his relationship, can we take these moments right now to come back to God, to come back to the goodness of a God who loves us. He loves unconditionally. He loved you in your past. Before you ever decided to go to church, He loved you. He loves you presently. So much so that you're blessed in this season. You are blessed. And He has a future prophetic word for you. And that word is in the end, we win. Come on, the church is victorious in the end. His love is advancing His kingdom right now. God deserves your very best. So I'm going to invite you. Let's take a moment now.